Hello there, folks. Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Undercover Bubble Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Moore, and I'd like to thank you very much for joining me once again to take a deep dive into this interesting thing that we call the conservative media bubble. Now, before I begin, I just want to say really quickly that I am very much aware that Donald Trump has been indicted and that he's going to be arraigned in court in New York tomorrow. And this is an episode that I have always wanted to do ever since the Mar-a-Lago raid happened and we knew an indictment was coming. And I am very excited to be able to bring you that. But that's not what I'm going to be talking about today. Because while the indictment of a former president is indeed big, significant, game-changing news, I believe there's something a lot more important that a lot of people aren't talking about right now. And that is the school shooting that happened in Nashville last week. And while it was admittedly pretty big news when it did happen, as soon as the news came out that Trump was indicted a couple of days later, it completely disappeared from the news cycle and we all stopped talking about it. But I wish that that hadn't happened. Because it seemed like, for the first time, there was a pretty decently sized crowd of liberals, centrists, and decently minded conservatives about gun control all clamoring for something to happen. And again, we'd never seen a response like this after a school shooting before. So it's almost as though, as happy as I am that Trump is indicted, and believe me, I am extremely happy, it's almost as if that news took the wind out of the sails of whatever movement might have been coming to finally be able to push through some sort of sensible gun control. Now, that being said, just like with the midterms and the Democrats, Gen Z might be the ones to save us. High school students in Nashville walked out of their classrooms both today and last week and headed to the state capitol to protest gun violence. But I'm not here to talk about what they're doing, although what I think they're doing is very important and should be commended. I'm here, of course, to talk about the way that the bubble and the right reacted to it. And as you might expect, they blamed everything they could except for the guns. So let's start as we typically do with Fox News. When news of the shooting broke, they immediately made a huge deal about the fact that the shooter was a woman. And actually, I should mention that it is a big deal that this shooter was a woman because mass shootings, since they started being tracked, I believe, in the 70s, only seven out of thousands of known shootings in the United States have been by women. So kudos to Fox for actually displaying an interesting and important stat. But then they turned to the type of weapon she used and lots of talk about the AR-style rifles. And they spent a good half hour that I can remember talking about their capacity, their velocity, their ammo type, how lethal they were, and things like that. And the worst thing about it is that they talked about the AR-15 and its derivatives as though they were putting on an ad at a gun show saying that it was a very effective weapon. It definitely made my stomach turn because, as I'm about to discuss, the problem is not anything other than the easy availability and accessibility of guns in this country. But it's almost as if Fox were using the tragedy as an opportunity to endear themselves more to the gun-toting conservative crowd. So instead of dwelling on the tragedy that it was, at least for a little bit, Fox was basically running an infomercial for the AR-15. But believe it or not, when this segment was over, Fox actually had on a Tennessee Democratic representative. However, I gotta say, they asked some very weird, pointed, and leading questions of this Democratic representative. For example, one of the things they said to him was, look at this idyllic place, talking about the school where the shooting took place. This is not the kind of place where this normally happens. What do you think about that? So in other words, definitely throwing some shade at public schools, saying they're more violent, because this is a Christian private school that got shot up. And after this, they straight up pushed the narrative that security wasn't adequate and that teachers should be armed. Asking the rep, should there have been more security at a place like this? Could this have possibly been prevented if the teachers were armed and trained? And I'll get into exactly what the hell is wrong with that statement in a bit. 
But to his immense credit, the Democratic representative, who unfortunately I don't remember his name, didn't fall into the trap and reiterated that nothing of the sort would have changed anything. The definitive answer he gave to almost every question they asked him was, the solution is less guns. And honestly, I feel like we need more of that perspective coming through in places like Fox in the bubble. Because the whole idea of the bubble, as I've said many times on this show, is that you don't get any other points of view. They give you what they want you to believe and say that everyone else is either lying to you or a pedophile or lizard people or whatever you want to call them. They're just not you and you shouldn't trust them. So it's good to see that Democrats are starting to figure out that if they can actually poke a little bit into that bubble and feed them some actual real facts, they might change a mind or two. And as close as all these elections in the past have been, that might be enough to swing some sort of local or even national election. But moving on to Newsmax, they actually played it pretty straight, at least initially. The article they posted up about the shooting emphasized that the school had active shooter training, and that may have prevented a bigger body count. My response to which is that the fact that we are giving elementary age school children active shooter training, and that we have to, and that we feel like we have to, is simultaneously sad, scary, and rage-inducing for me. But kudos to Newsmax, they didn't try and politicize anything, they just reported it as it was, with the facts. So well done, Newsmax. <laughs> That's a sentence I never thought I'd utter in my life. But moving on to One America, the shooting was not the lead story. That honor belonged to a ransom Florida couple traveling in Haiti. The shooting story was relegated to the crawl below the main story section. And at first, it didn't even show up there. I had to scroll forward in this story reel just to find it. The lead one there was about Alan Dershowitz saying that there's anti-Trump bias in the mainstream media. And when I did click the article, it wasn't even an article. It just showed a link to the 10-minute video of the initial press conference that they held after the shooting. And my take on this is that One America don't want to talk about the shooting because school shootings make the gun lobby look bad, and OAN probably gets a decent amount of money from them. As when I do watch their news, I see a lot of commercials for tactical gear and sometimes even gun stores. Continuing with the rundown, let's go to Breitbart. Breitbart had the shooting as a story on the side of the page in small writing. The main focus was on the page-gobbling headline of DA prosecuting Trump would be outrageous abuse of power. And I'll be getting to things like that in the next episode, but for now, we're talking about the shooting. So the article itself is short and hard to read due to a massive bombardment of ads and had an interesting tidbit at the end of it bashing gun control advocates. And the interesting thing is, when I just now read this note back to myself and tried to look the article up to see what that exact statement was, I couldn't find it. The article has since disappeared from the website. And the only thing I could find that was close to it was an article highlighting security at private schools. So they must have deleted this article for some reason. My guess is because that take at the end of the article probably didn't make them look very good. And then we come to Real America's Voice, the Steve Bannon network, who didn't mention the shooting at all. Instead, they spent the half hour or so I spent watching talking about East Palestine, a story that culminated in the news and died down weeks ago but Breitbart still wants to talk about it because they will take any chance they get to make Joe Biden look bad. And again, school shooting makes the gun lobby look bad, so they just don't want to talk about it. They're going to pretend it didn't happen. Looking on their website, Real America's Voice is nothing but pro-Trump, anti-Biden, and Democratic propaganda with a healthy sprinkling of we should bring back death by firing squad thrown in. A nice little tidbit to add on the day of a school shooting, don't you think? But despite the different reactions from different parts of the bubble to this shooting, in the aftermath, as is usual with these tragedies, in all of them we had the typical cycle of thoughts and prayers, followed by the bubble playing the blame game. And while the Democrats blamed guns immediately, the Republicans in the bubble blamed anything but. First, the Fox crowd actually very briefly saw the real world view of these tragedies. 
A Nashville mom took over the Fox News broadcast after one of the first press conferences and said what she wanted to say. I have been lobbying in D.C. since we survived a mass shooting in July. I have met with over 130 lawmakers. How is this still happening? How are our children still dying and why are we failing them? Gun violence is the number one killer of children and teens. It has overtaken cars. Assault weapons are contributing to the border crisis and fentanyl. We are arming cartels with our guns and our goose loose gun laws. And these shootings and these mass shootings will continue to happen until our lawmakers step up and pass gun safety legislation. I'm pretty sure this was an unsecured weapon that this teenager got a hold of. We can't even pass gun safety, like safe storage laws in this country to protect kids from getting a hold of weapons that they shoot each other with. All right, so uh, we're going to break away there because that reporter who was using that camera is uh, obviously setting up to do a, a live report there. But the woman said it quite succinctly, aren't you tired of this? Yes, we are tired of this. It's interesting to me that even after hearing exactly what she said, which, by the way, was absolutely brilliant, and she even threw in some references to a lot of Republican talking points like the fentanyl crisis and the border crisis, and saying that guns are exacerbating these things, which, of course, they are, the host clearly thought he had to do something to distract his viewers from what they just heard. So he just succinctly and definitively summed it up in one sentence. Aren't you tired of this? The insinuation, of course, being that that part of her argument was the only part that had any value. Everything else that you just heard about her substantive argument about why guns are the problem does not matter. It's basically the news equivalent of, hey, look at the shiny red ball. And in case you couldn't tell, it makes me more than a little bit frustrated to basically completely disregard this woman's very logical argument and try and boil it down to shooting's bad. But don't hate guns, because they're not the problem even though she just said they were. La, 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 I can't hear you. And as if to prove my point, in the very next segment of the Fox News broadcast about the shooting, the pundits started blaming the doors. We, we need to remember, you know, the, the side door. I'm not trying to point fingers. I don't know the exact facts at this moment, but from what I understand, a side door was unlocked. That seems to be a common pattern in many of these shootings, a side mm-hmm. door. If we can lock the side doors and make sure that the schools are secure, hopefully we can avoid these tragedies going forward. That's it, folks. We have the solution. Just lock the door. Never mind that the person trying to get in has a military-grade assault weapon and can just shoot through the door if they want to. Oh, wait. That's exactly what happened. Before long, police figured out that the door was actually locked and she shot her way through it. There's even video of her shooting through the locked door and just walking into the school. But even after these facts came out, it didn't stop them from saying that locked doors prevent school shootings. So, in other words, the reason the shooting happened wasn't the fact that the shooter had a gun, but the fact that the door was unlocked and that if it were locked, there would be no shooting. Forgetting to mention, of course, that the Sandy Hook shooter also shot his way through a locked security door. So this excuse is clearly BS. Let's move on to the next one. After it was clear the door excuse didn't have any leverage, no pun intended, Rick Scott blamed the fact that school shooters get off too easy in our courts of law. He said that, quote, we need to consider an automatic death penalty for school shooters. And my response to this is that Did it ever occur to Rick Scott or anyone else who believes in this lunacy that the vast majority of school shooters commit their act with the full intention of not making it out alive? In 2013, it was reported that roughly half of all school shooters died either from self-inflicted gunshot wounds or were killed by the police during the attack. And while I couldn't find any solid statistics on the last 10 years, I would not be at all surprised if that number stayed the same or actually went up. So, it can't be that. Unless we're assuming that the shooter did this with absolutely no idea of what the consequences would be for her. And considering that she wrote a manifesto and texted her friend that she was probably going to die that day, 
it would seem to me that she knew what she was doing and what would happen afterwards. Excuse number two debunked. Moving on to number three. Many people in the bubble were saying that mass shootings keep happening because the media encourages copycats by giving them too much coverage. Here's late night Fox host Greg Gutfeld making that argument. You know, we sit here, we do this all the time. Oh boy, how, why does this keep happening? Why does this keep happening? Look in the mirror. You know, we, we constantly, prominently place these stories. We repeat facts over and over again. The frequency plays a role. We provide step-by-step descriptions of the crime. We do not limit the use of photos or videos. We have live press events. What I'm talking about is we increase the spectacle of an event so that it stays in somebody's mind. The more you increase the frequency of a report, the more likely somebody's going to hear it and be influenced by it. All I'm saying is treat this, change the reporting methods Finally, let's just change the reporting methods and treat it like we treat teen suicides, celebrity suicides. We do actually tamp down that coverage. So believe it or not, Gutfeld actually makes a very good point. That a lot of times when media coverage of a school shooting happens, we tend to focus on things that we shouldn't be focusing on, like the shooter's motivations and methodology and the equipment they used and the plan that they had, and where and when and how they killed people. Sometimes they'll talk about their clothes and how they presented themselves at school and to their friends and their family. So what'll happen when they do things like this is that they oftentimes turn someone who should have been a social pariah because, you know, they went into a school and killed children with a gun. They turn them into some sort of anti-hero. And this, I agree, can further radicalize potential shooters and make them more likely to do it because they see how badass the mainstream media coverage makes shooters look. But I don't think that that's the larger point that Gutfeld is trying to get at here. What he's insinuating and what I believe Fox wants their viewers to take away from his argument is that if we just talked about school shootings less, then they would happen less. The bubble's reasoning here basically comes down to out of sight, out of mind. And the way I see it, there's two problems with this approach. First of all, shooters aren't typically inspired by other shooters, but by what they themselves have experienced in their own lives. Although, to be honest, it has actually happened that way before. But more importantly they would find more inspiration from non-mainstream media sources anyway. Shooters tend to be radicalized in places like online forums, like 8chan, for example. In other words, they find a safe spot to vent their feelings publicly and anonymously in these places. And not only that, they also find other people who encourage them and further radicalize them into action. And a perfect example of that, obviously, is January 6th, But we can also see elements of that in the New Zealand Christchurch shooting that happened a couple years ago. The shooter was radicalized on online forums and then posted on these same online forums that he was going to go shoot up a mosque. And the people on these forums cheered him on, encouraged him to do it, and then when he actually did do it, held him up as a sort of hero and savior. But in any case... I would say that it's too early at this point to tell if media coverage had anything to do with it. But it's very unlikely, since shooters aren't typically radicalized from the mainstream media. And it also doesn't change the fact that Gutfeld's argument comes down to, we need to talk about the shooting themselves less. And this is wrong. I say this needs to be as constant of a presence in the news cycle as it is for the parents of the children who died. Every single day, we need to be talking about this until something is done. We cannot grow numb to this sort of thing happening. And as it turns out, many folks in the GOP and in the bubble already have. And I'll talk about that in a bit. But in any case, these arguments and some variation of them lasted for a couple of hours after the initial report of the shooting. Then it came out that the shooter was trans. And that's when things started getting downright scary. As soon as I saw the news that the shooter had been transgender, I knew exactly what was coming. But I simply wasn't prepared for not only how quickly, but how zealously the bubble would jump on this information. They immediately started saying not just it happened and she was trans, 
but the shooting happened because she was trans. It started with J.D. Vance on Fox News, saying that a trans shooter targeted a Christian school, and that there needs to be a lot of soul-searching on the extreme left. Giving in to these ideas isn't compassion, it's dangerous. Tucker Carlson, of course, was the most prominent voice to immediately put the blame on trans culture. But he took it even further than that. So here's a snippet of Tucker Carlson's monologue at the beginning of his show from the day of the shooting. But somehow we can't see the manifesto in which the killer explains why she killed. Why is that? It's not accidental. Well, you know exactly why it is. Because it would make the obvious undeniable. The trans movement is targeting Christians, including with violence. Most Christian leaders in this country don't want to admit that. Admitting it might force them to take deeply unfashionable positions. But it is true, and anyone who's paying attention knows that it's true. And so, like most true things at this point, it is officially suppressed. So if you didn't catch that, Tucker is essentially saying that trans people are now at war with Christianity. Which, of course, is not only completely absurd, but insinuating to his viewers that trans people themselves are dangerous. And as he usually does, Tucker used his formula for political gaslighting, so let's go ahead and break it down in that context. In case you need a refresher, there's three components to the Tucker formula for political gaslighting. Leading questions, inferred answers, and reversal of the burden of proof. Tucker begins by saying that because at the time they didn't have access to the shooter's manifesto, then he has to ask the question of, why is that? Why are they hiding it from us? Which, of course, is a very leading question that's designed to guide you towards a specific answer. The answer, of course, being that there must be some sort of sinister plot behind why we can't see the manifesto. He is purposely vague about what this plot is, but implores his audience into the conclusion that he wants to make. Ordinarily, he does this a little bit more subtly with something like, these are questions that need to be asked. But in this case, he just goes straight for the jugular. It's not accidental. You know exactly why. It would make the obvious undeniable that trans people are specifically targeting Christians. This is, of course, the inferred answer part of the Tucker formula. And again, I want to emphasize how unusual it is for even Tucker to be this direct about exactly what he wants his viewers to believe. And he even doubles down on it in the next couple of sentences, devoting them to dog whistling and the reversal of the burden of proof, which is part three of the Tucker formula. We know this is true, and most people don't want to admit it. He's essentially telling his followers who are afraid to profess these views publicly that he supports and believes them and that they are right. And they're right not because there is any proof that they're right, but because there is no proof that they're right. He ends his segment with, like most true things, it's being suppressed. The party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most essential command. What you're seeing, and what you're reading, and what you're hearing on the news isn't what's happening. In other words, The onus isn't on them to prove their points are correct. It's on everybody else to prove that what they're saying is not true. And even then, even if there is ample evidence disproving them, as the quotes that I referenced just now from 1984 and Donald Trump respectively say, don't believe anything anybody tells you other than us. And what we're telling you is that the trans people are coming for Christians. And now they have guns. And that's exactly why this shooting happened. No other reason. You don't have to think about anything else. Big Brother is my friend. But it wasn't just Tucker. Over the next couple of days, Fox's primetime shows were filled to the brim with coverage bashing trans people, particularly trans people with guns. And inevitably, some of them even took it a step further, saying that because Democrats supported trans people, The modern left was aligned against traditions and reality and supported what this trans shooter did. And this message resonated loud and clear through the bubble and through conservative Twitter. One notable conservative Twitter user posted, Dear Christians, arm yourselves. 
they are coming for you. And he posted this message alongside a screen grab of the security camera showing the shooter in the school. Josh Hawley introduced legislation into Congress, specifically calling the shooting a hate crime against Christians. And while he didn't explicitly say it, based on the coverage of this event in the conservative media bubble and the narrative that they were setting up here, I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that Hawley literally blamed the shooting on the trans community and wanted to use this bill as a way of punishing them. And the rest of the conservative media bubble picked up on this narrative as well. Breitbart, for example, ran a story quoting a couple of pro-trans Twitter accounts who had, shall we say, controversial reactions to the shooting. They essentially said that because Tennessee has been treating trans people the way that they have, they got what they deserved. A take that understandably didn't get any coverage in the media and didn't deserve to because it's terrible. But in this story, Breitbart heavily insinuated that not only did the entire trans community feel this way, but that the left and the Democrats by proxy encouraged and defended this behavior, specifically because they were trans. Marjorie Taylor Greene got in on the act too, saying that in the wake of a transgender shooter targeting a Christian school and murdering kids, every American should know the threat of Antifa-driven trans terrorism. Before that, her account was actually suspended for a little bit, when she essentially advocated for violence against trans people at a gathering they were going to have in D.C. The Washington Examiner said that it was part of a Twitter-wide takedown of mentions of the event, which, given the narratives going around in the conservative media bubble at the time, I honestly can kind of understand. And finally, there's The Federalist. When I went to their website to see what their reaction to this whole trans thing was, and the shooting in general, I saw something at the top of their page that I've never seen before. And I can tell you this because I've been going onto The Federalist's website for years now, to do research both for this podcast, the one preceding it, and the blog preceding that. But in all that time, I've never seen the banner that is now at the top of the Federalist page that says, Be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. If you ask me, this sounds distinctly like a call to arms for the conservative right. And one of the most prominent articles on the front page of the Federalist is called, When it comes to the Nashville shooting, leftists suddenly ditch their identity obsession. And the entire article is essentially just the Tucker formula for political gaslighting in written form. He asks, when it's a white police officer shooting a black suspect, CBS News and other left-wing outlets directly frame coverage around the race of the officer. So why didn't they do this for a trans shooter targeting Christians? The media narrative around transgender people is that they're the victims. The insinuation being, of course, that there's a history of trans versus Christian violence, which, of course, there isn't. But this doesn't stop the author from heavily implying that the mainstream media, and by definition the Democrats, thought that the violence may have been justified. And while he does admit that it's still unclear if gender identity played a role in the shooting, he presents that point with the huge caveat of, given the context in which the shooting occurred, it's reasonable to wonder. The article concludes by saying that because the left refuses to discuss the Nashville shooter in the way that we want them to, their silence on this issue exposes their intent, saying that not only are Democrats okay with this shooting because a trans person did it, they support and encourage it. Which, again, is absolutely ridiculous. I haven't heard any prominent Democrats say anything to the effect of what happened in this shooting was a good thing. Because if they had, they would be immediately booted from whatever leadership or congressional position that they might have and would never be heard from again in the Democratic Party. But in blaming this shooting on trans people and the trans movement in general, the conservative media bubble found a scapegoat that they could pin this on other than the guns. And when pressed on why it wasn't the guns that were the problem, the Republicans had a very simple and sad answer. An answer that's probably best represented by Congressman Tim Burchett of Tennessee. It's, it's a horrible, horrible situation. And we're not going to fix it. Criminals are going to be criminals. I guess it's official. The Republican Party has thrown up its hands and said, we're not going to fix it. 
criminals are going to be criminals. And if they want to kill you, they're just gonna. And there's nothing you can do about it. And when asked about whether or not he'd be okay with his own kids going to school in this situation, his response was, I homeschool my kids. So in other words, not only is the congressman a gigantic hypocrite, he's saying subconsciously almost that we're not going to fix it because we don't want to change the gun laws. After all, they've been bending over backwards over and over again every time this happens to try and blame everything and anything other than the one thing that is causing all the death, which is, of course, the guns and easy access to them. And it's with this in mind that I'd like to do something that I've never done before on this podcast and don't usually like to do. I'm going to throw my own personal opinion into the mix and talk openly and earnestly about gun culture in America, the Second Amendment, and what I think needs to happen for us to fix this. And the reason I'm doing this is because I am just absolutely sick of turning on the news every day and expecting, knowing that at some point there's going to be another mass shooting, another school shooting, and knowing, as the Republican said, that there's nothing that we're going to do about it. Even though children are literally dying for our right to own military-grade firearms, nothing will be done. We'll go through our thoughts and prayers motions and just start the whole cycle over again after the next shooting. So first off, I do have a bit of a personal stake in this particular issue. Because I grew up in Thousand Oaks. And for those of you who don't know where that is but have heard the name of that town before, it's where the Borderline shooting took place in 2018. Now, I wasn't at Borderline during the shooting, but I had been there many times before when I was younger, in my late teens and early 20s, for a college night that they held once a week. And I would just go there and dance and hang out with my friends and have a good time. And when this shooting happened, it hit me really hard. Because not only did I feel absolutely terrible for everyone who had to deal with it and be involved in it, the thought crossed my mind of both, it could have been me if it were in a different time, and those people who were there just having a good time, the college students, were just like me. And this is a perspective that I don't really see being represented at all in conservative media when it comes to mass shootings. Their focus is always on the perpetrator, the methodology, and of course, the hardware. I said at the beginning of the show that when the shooting initially happened, Fox seemed to have a rather unhealthy fixation on just what the shooter used to commit the crime. And they couldn't stop talking about the AR-15 and its ammo types and how effective of a weapon it was. In other words, taking focus off of what the focus should be on, which is, why did this happen and how can we fix it? And so what I want to get into here is, why is the conservative mindset in particular so obsessed with not only blaming everything but the guns, but that the guns themselves are held in such high esteem that they are basically untouchable? And I think I have an answer to that question. And it's not going to be one that, honestly, a lot of people are going to like. And the conclusion that I'm going to make at the end of this is probably going to get me disqualified from ever running for any sort of public office. But I don't care. Because I feel like this is something that needs to be addressed. And the solution is something that needs to be talked about. So with this in mind, I'd like to read something that I wrote 11 years ago, right after the Sandy Hook school shooting. At the time, I didn't have a political blog yet, but I was making very highly political posts on my Facebook. And the murder of 20 kids between 6 and 7 years old definitely made me feel like I had to say something. So I'd like to read you what I wrote back then in the context of the Sandy Hook school shooting, the Nashville school shooting, and every other school shooting that's happened in between. Now, I will admit, before I read this, that not all of my opinions were fully formed on this subject at the time, so I will be sort of updating it as I go along, 
But I think the general point that I'm trying to get to with what I say in this post remains true today. And now, especially in the context of what we're hearing from the bubble regarding we can't fix it, we're not going to do anything, it's everything's fault but the guns, I think it's important that people hear it. So I'm going back in the time machine now. This is a post I made in December 2012 called Guns, the Second Amendment, and the Nature of Power. It seems as though it has now become commonplace in today's society to hear stories about another mass shooting. The Aurora, Colorado theater shooting and the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre have, without a doubt, shocked the entire nation and forced us to revisit our gun control policies. How is it that such mentally disturbed individuals are able to legally obtain a deadly weapon? Is our gun policy to blame? Or is it the responsibility of gun shop owners to make sure that their customers are truly qualified to carry a firearm? Since the Sandy Hook massacre, these questions have been raised in debates across the country and have added a highly charged political element to what should be seen simply as what it is, a tragedy. The rhetoric from the Sandy Hook massacre has resulted in yet another political divide in Washington. Those who advocate for tougher restrictions on gun ownership and those who believe the Second Amendment should be set in stone and free of restrictions. Regardless of which side of the debate one may lie on, it is a fact that America has the loosest restrictions on gun ownership of any developed country in the world. As a result, there are 81 guns for every 100 citizens in the United States, far more than in any other nation. So first side note here, that number has actually gone up in the last 11 years, and is now, I believe, closer to 120 guns for every 100 citizens. So in other words, there are more guns in America now than there are people. Just think about that as I keep reading here. Second Amendment enthusiasts argue that it is this fact that makes America safe, and that were so many people not armed, the majority of guns would be in the hands of criminals, resulting in more crime and more violent deaths. However, they failed to take into account the actual numbers relating to gun deaths in the United States. According to statistics gathered by the FBI, there were 8,775 victims of gun violence in 2010, accounting for roughly three-quarters of all murder weapons and eclipsing the same rate for all other developed countries by a wide margin. To put these numbers into perspective, Americans are 15 times more likely to be killed by firearms than members of any other first world nation. Yet even with statistics like these, showing that the number and availability of guns more than likely contributes to our absurdly high firearm homicide rate, people all across the country, led by pro-gun organizations such as the NRA, continue to cling to their weapons with vehement passion, often promising retribution, insurrection, or even murder or suicide if the government tries to take away their guns. So why are these people so passionate about their firearms? Most of them would point to the Second Amendment as proof that the Founding Fathers would want them to keep their guns. For those who aren't familiar with it, here's the exact wording. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. In one respect, these people are right. The Founding Fathers did indeed want their fellow countrymen to be able to own guns. However, let's take a look at the historical context under which this law was passed. In the 1700s, the most sophisticated piece of military technology available was the cannon, and the vast majority of soldiers were armed with flintlock muzzle-loading muskets. This was the exact same technology that was available to normal people, which meant that, in a way, the average person in 1789 could potentially be just as well-armed as the country's standing army. This was important back then. One of the reasons why the Americans were able to win the Revolutionary War is because they were able to have access to the same kind of armaments that their British adversaries had. These militias were able to stand toe-to-toe with the British army because they had access to the same weaponry. So in order to make sure that this system stayed in place, and that America would never be at risk for a hostile takeover, the government passed the Second Amendment to ensure that people would be able to defend themselves and the country in the event that a foreign entity should try to invade the United States. 
At the time, this was a well-intentioned and smart move. The army might take days or weeks to arrive at a conflicted area, and the Second Amendment allowed people to form a militia to defend their homes and businesses from the enemy. However, the vast expansion of technology utilized by the military over the next 240 years is something the Founding Fathers could not have possibly foreseen. Since the Second Amendment was passed, militaries around the world have added tanks, planes, missiles, nuclear bombs, aircraft carriers, APCs, unmanned drones, highly sophisticated electronics, and a mind-boggling array of automatic weapons, each designed with the purpose of efficiently killing as many enemy soldiers as possible. The sophistication of firearms available to everyday consumers, however, has not experienced the same growth. Most of the firearms owned by Americans are handguns, semi-automatic assault rifles, and hunting weapons. In fact, it's illegal for most ordinary citizens to own anything more sophisticated than an AR-15. Going back to the original reason of why the Second Amendment was passed, it seems absolutely absurd to think that a militia armed with AR-15s and hunting rifles could stop a foreign military who invaded our country with tanks and jets. I don't care how many times you've seen Red Dawn, the idea is clearly inconceivable. Instead, we would call for aid from our own military, who can counter any threat anywhere in the world almost instantaneously, thanks to global force projection. So in reality, rather than trying to mount a Red Dawn-style resistance against an overwhelming invading enemy, we would rely on our own nation's military for protection from these foreign enemies. And thus, the concept and the need of the well-regulated militia died with the invention of automatic rifles, armored war machines, and nuclear bombs. This same logic applies to those who would say their reasoning for keeping guns is to protect them from being forcefully taken over by our own government. This sentiment grows out of the socialist state conspiracy that's been floating around since the beginning of Obama's term as president, which states that Obama and his liberal allies are secretly conspiring to turn the United States into what is essentially a government-sanctioned socialist empire, where guns are outlawed and freedom is limited. Sound familiar, folks? This is, of course, a ridiculous assertion. Obama is clearly not a socialist, and even if he was, he does not control the government to a degree that he could make it happen. More important, though, is the fact that even if the government decided to come for our guns, which, of course, they wouldn't, there would really be nothing we could do about it. What good would a civilian firearm serve against a Predator drone or a guided missile? We rely on the Army, and subsequently the government, to protect us from harm because we trust them to do what is in our best interest. The reason we trust the government is because we are the government. If we disapprove of the way things are being handled, we the people have the power to oust our leaders from their positions and vote in someone who we do trust. Tying this in with the issue of gun ownership, the government would never impose a ban on guns simply because the people would never let it happen. Even if somehow a ban on firearms made it through the multi-million dollar gun lobby both houses of Congress, the President's desk, and the Supreme Court. The democratic system would likely ensure that the people's voice on the issue was heard, and the ban would probably be overturned. So, with all of this in mind, why then do people still cling so vociferously to their firearms? Why is there so much passion, so much hatred and blind stubbornness on the side of conservative gun owners? I believe that it's not a matter of the Second Amendment or of freedom, but rather of the very nature of power in human society. Pro-gun advocates would argue that guns don't kill people, people kill people. The statement does have a grain of truth to it. After all, a gun in an empty room isn't going to fire itself most of the time. However, this sentiment also reinforces the point that a person with a gun is far more dangerous than a person without a gun. With firearms accounting for two-thirds of all murder weapons and a significant amount of violent crime, it would seem that a more accurate version of the statement might read, guns don't kill people, people with guns kill people. More importantly, guns make it significantly easier for people to kill other people. I recall a statement made by the Joker in The Dark Knight, in which he explains his reasoning for preferring the use of knives in murder as opposed to guns. Do you want to know 
why I use a knife. Guns are too quick. You can't savor all the little emotions. And you see, in their last moments, people show you who they really are. Putting this quote into context, guns disconnect the shooter from the terrible deed that they're committing. Those who commit murder with a gun are able to do so with nothing more than a twitch of the finger. They do not need to feel the person dying in their arms, nor do they need to go through the emotional impact of watching them die in front of them. They can just shoot and walk away. It is far easier, both in terms of the physical act and the mental consequences, to kill with a gun than with any other weapon. I believe that this gives gun owners, and specifically conservative gun owners, a feeling of superiority over their fellow man. Guns provide them with the means and subsequently the power to kill another person in the easiest possible way. Throughout history, we've seen men with varying degrees of power from all corners of the world cling to their positions with relentless zeal, oftentimes killing countless others just to hold on to this temporary position of dominance. It's the natural instinct of any animal, including man, to want to keep positions of power and challenge those who would try to take it away. To quote the Oracle from the Matrix trilogy, what do all men with power want? More power. The gun debate, in my view, simply comes down to this same concept on a smaller but broader scale. Gun rights advocates want to keep their firearm-derived power, no matter how insignificant, because it's in their nature to do so. And if America is serious about addressing the issue of gun violence, change must start with the gun owners themselves. Second Amendment advocates must look in the mirror and ask themselves if their little taste of power is worth the death of thousands of innocent people every year. How many elementary school children must be gunned down before gun rights zealots realize that widespread distribution and easy availability of guns is a problem and not a solution? I'm not saying that guns should be banned outright, but instead that they should be better regulated, with mandatory criminal and mental background checks, as well as more reliable tracking of firearms. In conclusion, I believe that the gun rights issue is not about the Second Amendment or personal protection, but is reflective of our society's glorification of the importance of power. The Founding Fathers unwittingly opened the floodgates with the passage of the Second Amendment, and until the issue is addressed in some way, people will continue to die at the hands of disturbed individuals who try to solve their personal problems with a gun. Now, I will admit, I wasn't the world's greatest writer at 24 years old, But I think the substance of what I was trying to say in this post still rings true today. I've given many examples on this podcast of how the conservative mind tends to value things like fear and strength and power over other things that might otherwise be rationally more important. And it goes into what I've always considered sort of the guiding principle for a lot of conservative ideology, which is truthiness as Stephen Colbert used to call it. Believing not what the facts are telling you, but what you feel in your heart. And while the facts all say that the problem with gun culture in this country is that we have too many guns and it's leading to more shootings, what you feel in your heart as a conservative is, oh, well, I have this gun and it makes me feel powerful. And I don't want to give up that feeling of power. So because of this, the conservative bubble and conservatives in general will go to absolutely absurd lengths up to and including blaming groups and individuals that have absolutely nothing to do with the shooting itself to deny that the problem is the very thing that's doing the killing. Because it is in their nature, not just as conservatives, but as people and as animals Because yes, we are animals, and as animals, we have instinctual reactions. And our instinctual reaction to having this little bit of power is, we don't want to give it up. Now that being said, 
I am aware that there are both liberal gun owners and more responsible conservative gun owners. And I'm also well aware that the vast majority of gun owners are responsible with their firearms. But I'm not talking about them. I have no problem with people who want to own firearms and be responsible with them. What I'm referring to here is the fact that it's so easy for anyone, including and especially mentioning people who shouldn't have them, like mentally disturbed individuals or people with a history of domestic violence, being able to go out and buy a weapon that can instantly kill whoever they point it at with a twitch of their finger. And the justification for them being able to do this is an almost 250-year-old law that was passed in a time when the average citizen could be just as well armed as another country's standing army. And I'm not even mentioning the fact that if you read the Second Amendment in its entirety, the second part, the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, definitely reads like an extension of the first part, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. So it could be argued, and in my opinion would be the correct argument, that gun ownership only makes sense in the context of a well-regulated state militia. So in other words, and I might catch a little bit of controversy for saying this, the Second Amendment does not necessarily guarantee that you as a person are able to legally and privately own a firearm for personal use. So with this in mind, to close this special comment segment and the show in general today, I'd like to propose two different solutions to our gun violence problem. One not so realistic and the other a little bit more so. So let's start with the pie in the sky, definitely not going to happen in a million years solution. This is definitely a controversial solution and would likely keep me from getting elected to any sort of public office if I actually tried to make it reality. And that solution is that the Second Amendment needs to either be abolished or completely rewritten to add the proper context. Because, as I said, even back in 2012, the Second Amendment is just insanely outdated in terms of both what it's designed to do and why it's designed to do it. America is not in its colonial infancy anymore. We don't need to worry about other countries trying to march into our territory and take it over. And not only that, even if we did have to worry about that, we'd be dealing with modern armies, the likes of which can't be stopped by anything like an AR-15. So with that in mind, I would propose that the Second Amendment is no longer necessary to the security of our free state. When the Second Amendment was passed, gun ownership was seen, and rightfully so, as a guarantee of security for our new nation that at the time was surrounded by foreign entities who might at any time march an army into our territory and try and take it over. But despite what Vladimir Putin might believe, the world doesn't work that way anymore. We have no worry about Mexico deciding on a whim to march some troops into Texas and try and take it back. The world order that we, as the world's sole superpower, have created basically nullifies the need for the Second Amendment at all. Now, this being said, I'm obviously well aware of how controversial of an opinion let's get rid of the Second Amendment would be. So I would also say I would be okay with just finally clarifying the Second Amendment into what it's supposed to be which is a guarantor and enabler for state militias to be able to arm their populace in the case of an invasion. So rather than just completely abolishing the Second Amendment, we could instead rewrite it to clearly state exactly what it's meant to be used for. And I think it would sound something like this. For the sole purpose of the maintenance of a well-regulated state militia, the right of the people to keep and bear arms to this end shall not be infringed. So what this does is it essentially clarifies exactly what the Second Amendment is meant to be used for. State militias, local militias. So if you want a gun under this new Second Amendment, you have to join your local militia, government-backed militia. We're not talking about the Proud Boys here. You train on the use of that gun and basic military tactics with your local militia. 
And once you're done and they give you the gun, you are now part of the local militia. And if they call you up to fight, you must answer. More importantly, if you are not part of the local militia, you are not allowed to own a gun. And it would go without saying that anyone who wanted to join the local militia and get a gun would be subject to extensive background checks and pretty much anything else you'd have to go through when joining, say, the army. And speaking of the army, they don't even let their own troops carry their guns around. They have an armory where you have to go to get your weapon, and the only time you get your weapon is if you're actually going out on a mission. So in this respect, this interpretation of the Second Amendment actually gives you more freedom with your guns than the army does. And that also tells you a lot about what the army thinks about the effectiveness of these weapons. But more importantly, under this system, it would be impossible for anybody to just walk down the street one day and decide to buy a gun. And this, in my opinion, is the most pertinent and important problem that we need to solve. But because America is a gun-centric culture just as it is, I am well aware that this solution would never fly in the real world. Not to mention that anyone who proposed a solution like this would get absolutely crucified in any sort of election. So instead, I'd like to propose a second solution that would probably have a much better chance of actually passing. Let's call it the Universal Firearm Regulation Law. This law would be enacted at the federal level and would supersede any state firearms laws. So in other words, there are no state firearm laws anymore. This is a federal statute that goes over all of those laws and applies to everybody. And it would have a few components. Component number one would be the immediate ban on the sale and private ownership of military-style assault rifles. There is no logical reason why any ordinary citizen would need the kind of firepower provided by something like an AR-15 for anything other than killing multiple people. I can't think of anyone who would use an AR-15 to hunt deer. A high-powered rifle like that would honestly probably blow it to smithereens and make it completely worthless as a trophy. So because the sole purpose of assault-style weapons is to kill people, I would say that the average American doesn't need them and shouldn't have them. And seeing as the vast majority of mass shootings committed in this country are committed by AR-15-style weapons, and also considering that we did have an assault weapons ban for 10 years and the number of mass shootings dropped significantly, I would say that a ban on regular civilians owning assault-style weapons is definitely justified. Component number two. Every purchase of a firearm, regardless of what type of weapon the firearm is, or whether it's a private sale or from a public arena or from a gun dealer, should be subject to an extensive background check in which the person's police record, any history of mental illness or instability, or any issues with domestic violence or depression or anything like that, should pop up as a red flag and not allow them to own a gun. There should also be a test taken by the buyer on the spot to show that they have adequate knowledge of proper operation and storage of firearms, after which this person will be given a license or certificate saying that they had passed the test and could now purchase a gun, and at least a 10-day waiting period before the buyer can actually pick up their gun. So in other words, I think the way we do firearms purchases in California is a pretty good model for the way that we should do it in the rest of the country. And to those who would say that this actually does infringe on our right to bear arms, I would say two things. Firstly, that cars are also dangerous machines, and we need a license and six months of training to operate them. And it's arguably a lot easier to kill with a gun than it is to kill with a car. So we're actually giving gun owners more of a benefit of the doubt by not requiring them to go through six months of training before they can use one. And secondly, there is nothing about this law that would infringe on a law-abiding American citizen in good standing's ability to own a gun. Requiring potential gun owners to go through a series of very simple, very easy steps in order to purchase a deadly weapon is not the same thing as saying you can't have one. Going back to the car analogy, that argument would make as much sense as saying, 
because you require us to license our drivers, you're infringing on our right to own a car. So the bottom line here is that we need some sort of universal nationwide gun control that applies to everybody and can't be skirted by going to a different state to buy a gun. And the third and final component of this universal gun law is that ammunition, no matter what the caliber or type, would be subject to the same laws that buying a gun would, minus the 10-day waiting period. And the reason I say this is because I understand that a lot of people who go to the range to shoot their guns buy their ammunition on the spot. And considering that ammunition is basically useless without a gun to fire it from, and also considering that in order to have this gun, you need to be licensed, and in order to purchase the ammunition, you need this same license, I have no problem with waiving a 10-day waiting period for ammunition. But this is also keeping in mind, and this is the real important part here, that in order to buy ammunition, you need this same firearm certificate and to have completed this same background check that you did when you bought your gun. And this would prevent situations such as, for example, a young kid wanting to shoot up his school, so he buys ammunition either online or from a local retailer and brings it home and uses his parents' guns to commit the mass shooting. While guns are dangerous, they're not nearly as dangerous without the ammunition. And by licensing ammunition purchases just like we would guns, we would make it much harder for a potential shooter to be able to buy the ammo he needs to commit mass murder. And that's it. I believe with those three things, the banning of assault-style weapons, the licensing, background check, and waiting period for gun purchases, and the necessitation of licenses for ammo purchases, we could completely curb this epidemic of mass shootings that we have in this country while still allowing people to keep and use their guns responsibly. All it would take is a background check that could probably be done in 10 minutes just to make sure that you're not crazy or a domestic abuser or anything like that. A short and relatively easy test that anyone who knows how to use a gun would be able to pass in order to get your license. And honestly, folks, the firearms test is super easy. I have never owned or fired a firearm in my entire life, and I was able to pass it. And a 10-day waiting period to make sure that you're not buying this thing out of passion to go kill somebody. And considering that we've had 136 mass shootings in the first 94 days of this year, I don't think it's too much to ask that the sole cause of all this death be a little bit better regulated. We owe it to our children, and especially the ones that will no longer grow up because they were killed by a gun, to find a solution to this problem. But unlike the GOP and the conservative media bubble, I'm not willing to sit back on my hands and say, well, criminals will be criminals. There's nothing we can do. Forgive my language, but that is bullshit. The truth is, they don't want to do anything about it. Because they like their little slice of power that they have when they're holding their gun, and they don't want to get rid of it, even if it means the death of hundreds of schoolchildren. And the problem with the way that the Democrats have been approaching this issue in the past is messaging. Historically, Democrats have always been about more gun control, but they're afraid to say it out loud. For too long, those in power on the left have been part of the thoughts and prayers crowd. But when it came to actually trying to pass legitimate gun reform, nothing ever happened because they were afraid of the political backlash. So to conclude what I'm trying to say in this commentary, what needs to change most of all is the attitude that liberals and the Democrats have towards being openly and honestly vocal about gun control. Prominent liberals need to hold lawmakers' feet to the fire as much as they possibly can until something is done. Because right now, as the Republicans have said, they're not going to fix it. Nothing is being done. So what we need to do as a society is to get right up in their faces and demand action. Too many of our children have died. Too many people have died. We are living in a society in which there are literally more mass shootings than there are days in a year. We are living in a society in which other countries are literally telling their citizens not to come to America because there's so much gun violence. 
something needs to be done. And thankfully, as I said at the beginning of the show, it does seem like something is starting to happen, at least in terms of Gen Z. Seeing all those high school students walk out of class and demand a solution is definitely a step in the right direction. But how is the conservative establishment reacting to this? Well, for one, the Tennessee state legislature is proposing that they expel any of its members that stood with the protesters. Furthermore, in Florida, Ron DeSantis quietly and unceremoniously signed a bill that allowed permitless concealed loaded carry of firearms. So, in other words, it's pretty clear where the conservative stance on this issue is. They want more guns, less regulations, less blame for those who fire them at other people, and if you complain about it, well, we're just going to kick you out of government. This is why it's up to us, folks, to actually give a damn and do something about it. Because the majority of those in power, especially in conservative states, will not change anything unless we make them. So write your congressman, give them a phone call. If there's a local protest about gun control, show up. And most importantly, in 2024, we need to elect candidates who have a common sense gun reform package like the one I've described as a central part of their legislative agenda. If we don't do this, if we don't fix this problem ourselves, because our lawmakers clearly are not going to, these mass shootings will only continue, or in the case of Florida, probably get worse, with nothing to blame but our own inaction. But I like to think of myself as an optimist. I see the spark that people like the Gen Zers in Nashville have lit, and I hope it turns into a roaring fire set directly under the butts of our lawmakers so that they are finally incentivized to actually do something about this epidemic of children dying to guns. So if you made it all the way through this rant, I thank you very much for listening. I hope you learned something. I hope you have a little bit different of a perspective on the problem with guns in our society. Because of the serious subject matter of this show, I didn't feel it was appropriate to end the show with a Jonesy. So I'll save that for next time when I talk about Donald Trump's indictment. Until then, thanks for listening to Undercover Bubble. If you like the show, feel free to subscribe and tell your friends. And I'll see you next time. Have a good one.